Okay, good morning, colleagues, and thank you to Gerta and uh, colleagues uh, for in inviting me. Um, it seems that we're all leaders now. No matter where we go uh, or what we read, we are normalized as a leader who does leading and leadership. Um, and as a field, it's quite a field of study and practice, it's quite plural. It's a rendezvous field. It's a field where lots of us are placed professionally, but also um, intellectually and in terms of research. However, you wouldn't know that if you actually attended any programs of training. I have a certificate in my office that says that I've been trained as a leader at the University of Manchester. And that was really quite odd to go and be trained in something for which I'd spent 30 years doing research. <laughs> and they certainly found the fact that I was there and raised questions and issues really quite troubling. So in that sense, it's leader, leading and leadership is obvious. We all know what it is, it's normalised. But actually, when you study the field, it's intellectual heritage, the work that's out there, but also the practice that goes on. It is plural, it is a rendezvous field, and therein lies its strengths and its weaknesses. Now, I've been studying this for about the last 30 years. My PhD was in intellectual history of what used to be called educational management and has now morphed into leadership and is currently morphing into entrepreneurialism. So all of a sudden, we will stop being leaders and become entrepreneurs. In fact, we already are. And I've had several ESRC projects looking at knowledge production in educational leadership. And also, I've had ESRC studentships where we've had students embedded in schools investigating what's going on. And so I'm going to draw on all of that. My most recent project was to look at consultants and consultancy, whereby not only was I using the material that had come from school leadership, the big international companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers and so on, and also professors as consultants making huge amounts of money and running their own companies on the side, but also the recent British Academy project looked at people who've been made redundant in local authorities and in schools and taken early retirement and become consultants. So in many ways, I'm looking at this in a broader context of the changing nature of work and the way in which we do our work. So the key question I want us to ask ourselves in terms of professional education in universities out there in colleges and schools is do we have an intellectual history and who owns it and who controls it? And it seems to me that we are not in control of our language, our ideas, our practices. And really what we're moving towards is the notion of the template. In other words, the, the answer's already provided and therefore all you have to do is deliver to the template. Now I'm being simplistic now, but it seems to me that that is the trend and I'm going to show and illuminate that in the talk today. So I want to begin with, when professionals have got decisions to make, uh, whether in the university, you know, I ran REF 2014, so my God, I know a lot about um, the challenges of decision making. So when you are running and making decisions in a university, a college, a school, a nursery, whatever it is, sanctuary buildings in London or wherever, then what do you turn to? In other words, when you've got a complex decision to make, uh, what do you turn to? What do you read? 
Where do you go on to the internet, perhaps? Who do you turn to? Who is your source of knowledge and, uh, and advice and support? Who's going to listen to you for a start-off? And why do professionals do this? Why might we go outside of our own particular questions and issues? And is it more than the family who have to listen to you in that first half an hour when you get home from work? There's a sense in which how you go beyond that. And we've got to look at notions of training and experience and know-how, but also how it connects to research. I'm very much convinced that we cannot, we never can, train leadership. And I'll come back to that later. And those who are trying to do it are lying. <laughs> okay, intellectual histories. I've been studying the intellectual history of what currently is called school leadership, maybe educational leadership, maybe university leadership. Who knows? The labels are ones that seem to slip around uh, quite a lot. And in terms of looking at intellectual histories, I'm concerned about knowledge production. What is the knowledge that we already have, the canon that's there in the library, increasingly in PDFs on our computers? What's the ways of knowing? In other words, how do we know? What are the methodologies and methods? But a lot of the time, there's no research. It's based on beliefs. You only have to look at what politicians say in speeches, what they say in uh, green papers, did a big study on teachers meeting the challenge of change from 1998. If you've not seen that, that is probably one of the, the most important documents that impacted on teacher education as well as the, the broader school system. It's got uh, a number of parts to it, and the questionnaire I kept, the consultation questionnaire, because my goodness, they're not research questions if you look at them. You know, do you think that schools should be well led? Yes, no. <laughs> well, you can imagine what I argued. I filled it in and said, no, schools should not be well led. Children should be well taught. Nobody wrote me, uh, rang me up to ask me about that. But also, not just knowledge and knowing, but knowers. Who are the knowers? Why should the OECD make pronouncements about school autonomy, but not ask people in schools? about the way autonomy is actually working and the lack of autonomy. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, KPMG run academy schools. Why? What's going on here? So you've got issues around who are regarded and given a claim as knowers and who are actually silenced and kept out. And then finally, knowledgeabilities. I talk about the four Ks. So the fourth one is knowledgeabilities. The things that you say and do, what you can do to show that you are knowledgeable. Your language, your dispositions, what you wear, how you present yourself. And certain people who've got the language and the ways of repackaging, because there's nothing new. It's just a constant repackaging and rebranding. Why are they therefore seen as knowers? And in particular, not only what is known, but what's regarded as worth knowing, and why, and who says so. So these are the kinds of questions that I want to raise, and these are the kinds of questions why I very rarely used to get invited to the National College for School Leadership. Now, when it comes to intellectual histories, I've done some study of this. There's a lot written around it, notions of intellectuals and intellectualism. I started it in my PhD and been more recently working on it. There are some people who would argue that an intellectual history is a trot through the century. 
following the ideas as they come down uh, through the centuries and seeing those ideas um, around notions of what leader and leadership mean, connecting back to monarchy, connecting to the military, connecting through to modern day corporate. You know, those kinds of aspects. The, the security and dominance of the leader-centric society, of which certainly the UK is. So we've got that in terms of issues of, of um, um, uh, intellectual histories, is following the ideas. I do think that ideas disconnected from the people who produce and use them is actually a very sterile history. So I've argued that we need to look at the intellectuals. Um, we need to look at the people who have produced the ideas, but more often than not, present themselves as intellectuals. What Bourdieu called lay fast talker, the person on the settee on breakfast television who pontificates about something, or even makes a great living doing training, but he spends their time repackaging rather than actually knowing. So that sense, if you like, of intellectuals, the people who are doing the big ideas. Now, if you were seriously into school leadership, you really know, need to know the work of Greenfield, Tom Greenfield. If you don't know his name and his work, then you are seriously not in control of your intellectual history. And then you've got practices, because I think that the ideas running over time and the people running over time is important, but ultimately, it's what we think and do and say every day that's integral to who we are intellectually, our intellectual work, and how we go about doing that work. So when it came to um, developing and understanding um, intellectual histories, I'm interested <coughs> in the resources that come from ideas and intellectuals <coughs> and how they relate to practices. Our practices here in the university, our practices out there as teacher educators with the profession, or like I was on Saturday doing an AD researcher session on uh, at Manchester where we were looking at the relationship between research and practice and so on and so forth. And the thing that my students get most angry about is that it takes them until the AD stage, the, the doctorate stage, to know about the richness of the resources that they have available and they get really angry that teacher training and the way in which teacher training has been designed and developed and offset have prevented them from being in control of their own ideas. So what have I done? 30 years has produced uh, five bullet points. And um, what I've done here is I've written an intellectual history, not the intellectual history. And it, I think if you're interested in this, this framework may not only enable you to think productively about what goes on in schools, because ultimately school leadership is because that book sells rather than university leadership. I'm sorry, but it's part of what the it, publishing is, is a, is a game. It's a business game. But I think these ideas will speak to you for those of you who are interested in terms of university. And of course, in relation to research, this is based on interviews with professionals in schools and colleges, trade unions, ministers, civil servants, and professors who produce the knowledge that is then there in the field. So I've got about 150 
uh, to 200 um, interviews with people who've been actively involved in relating um, knowledge, a particular kind of knowledge, and communicating it to the profession in schools. I'm just going to say a little bit about each of those, and then I'm going to draw it together and look at the trends. So if we take traditions, what are the ideas? Now this is Peter Ribbin's book from 97, from the Belmas Conference. This has got uh, verbatim interviews with people from schools, colleges, and universities. Really interesting. And this is an important tradition that's around the experiential tradition. People talking about their work. There's quite a lot of autobiographies around that. I've read a lot of those. Um, but of course, in the end, it's ultimately the silences. The people who are in the whole profession and never leave a record of who they are and what they're about, which is why I think interviews are important. But one tradition is experiential. The two that have come from outside have been the positivism of the Taylorist movement. In other words, that you can actually have or run uh, an educational organisation like a factory and a production line. <coughs> and then, of course, that was challenged through the Hawthorne studies of behaviourism and trying to understand how people interrelate, the kind of objective relations in the bank wiring room at the Hawthorne studies. Now, those come from um, uh, the private sector, but they're incredibly influential in education. That was challenged by Tom Greenfield, uh, a Canadian, and he essentially argued we've got to stop all of this measurement and positivism and actually recognise that organisations only exist in our practice and therefore we must focus on our values. In other words, monarchy only exists because we curtsy. Yeah? If we all stopped curtsying, then actually there would be issues around what that means. And around about the same time, you've got the growth of critical science and the idea of looking at power and using power from the social sciences, theories of power from the social sciences. So there you've got people like uh, Bill Foster. Now, Bill Foster is probably one of the best um, um, uh, people to articulate this in a book in the 1980s called Paradigms and Promises, and essentially arguing that leadership is not what elite people do. Power is not their property. Leadership is a communal resource that we all uh, access and use in our decision making. But once you read that, you realize uh, that, as Diane uh, uh, Ravage has argued, the hoax on the profession in this country has been huge. So, knowledge traditions. What are the purposes? In other words, you've got that knowledge, what are you using it for? Situational, in other words, I've got this problem to sort out. I need some knowledge and understanding. Where do I get it from? Oh, I get it from my experience. I did this 10 years ago. You know, how many of us do that? Yeah? But also, there are other resources. How many of us then read Tom Greenfield? How many of us read head teachers who've written about using Tom Greenfield? And they have and the way in which Tom Greenfield's enabled them to think differently and productively about how you deal with children in poverty when their behaviour is a product of the context that they're in. You've also got functional purposes, and this is Ken Leafwood's very famous book from 1999, telling us all that we must be transformational leaders, and if we have a vision and a mission, then children's learning will improve. So it's about 
uh, getting rid of the dysfunctions in our organisation, disconnected from the realism and activism. In other words, there's other research that says, what's it actually like to be ahead? What's it actually like to be a professor on a Monday morning? What's it actually like to be a child in that school uh, in South Liverpool? You know? So in that sense, trying to understand the realism. And, and to be honest, the best work on distributed leadership is done by Peter Grom, who's trying to look at what it actually means for people to do their work together. Forget all the rubbish that the school improvement people promote about distributed leadership. What's it like to do the job? But also, what about people who say, well, my purpose is to go out there and change the world, not just accept the world as it comes <coughs> through the school gate or the university gate. Um, and again, the best example of that is David Winkley, head teacher in Birmingham, who wrote a wonderful book called Handsworth Revolution. If you really want to know about activism, and the purposes of our knowledge, then that's a great example. What about change? Now, I've not got time to explain it, but we, I look at the interplay between traditions and purposes and identify that there's four main approaches to change. There's the philosophical, people like Christopher Hodgkinson, Anton Greenville are examples of philosophers who want to think about change. And that, that I think, has been an aspect that's always been um, a minority preoccupation, but actually it's very important. And we are denying the profession the opportunity to philosophize, and ourselves as well. Humanistic, that's about, well, uh, how do we understand how people cope and respond to change? There is some work, obviously, around that. Instrumental dominates. This is the change, folks. Here's the, the ring binder that will give you the answers to do it. I found the other day, because I'm doing a um, a workshop next on Friday on using primary documents in policy work, I found my copy of the original Ofsted framework in the ring binder. We forget management by ring binder and the way that that dominated. Now the templates tend to be uh, online. And then critical. And we need to look at both the right and left on this. You've got your John Smythes of this world who are on the left are seeking to bring change to the world that's about social justice linked to equity, whereas the right, uh, people like James Tooley, are about saying that those children are denied the opportunity to be consumers because of people like John Smiley. And we've got to get rid of the state. The real problem with education is that the state's involved. So I look at both the left and right positions, and if you really want to know what's unfolding, read James Tooley. He argues for the three Fs. Freedom, family, and philanthropy. You can't spell, um, but the idea that you must go for freedom, education is the responsibility of the family, nobody else, and if the family is dysfunctional, then philanthropy will pick up, pick up the bill. But what's the context in which it's happening? I think central to the context is notions of welfareism, and that is still in play in different parts of this country and certainly across Europe. The growth of the market, the growth of neoconservatism and the sense of behaviour and faith and various other groups and the dominance of elitism. The thing that I've recently argued in a, in a book that will come out later this year is that the norm is elite authoritarianism. 
And uh, the, de the democratic uh, experiment we've had has been an interruption to that. And what we're seeing is a restoration project that's going on. And then what are the networks who are doing this? There's a range of networks. And you need to be aware of these networks because when you read stuff, it's not about this is, this is the data. It's a, a power statement as to these are the people I want to be associated with. Um, and therefore, it's about how you look at the references. So I can't go through it now, but there's all these different groups. And this is where um, I'm particularly located in the CPALS group. And I convene that group at Manchester. So what are the current trends? The current trends are positivism and behaviorism. Out of those traditions, we are being told uh, this is what works and this is how you need to behave to deliver it. The purposes of functionality, we must have an efficient and effective system and therefore we must get rid of dysfunctions. And if those dysfunctions are people, fine, get rid. Stephen Courtney and I wrote a paper based on Jim Collins's um, book, you know, From Good to Great. That's very influential in this country. And in it, he talks about uh, getting people on and off the bus. In other words, the people you don't want in your organization, you get them off the bus. The people that you do want, you get them on the bus and on the right seats. Now, what we had was data that showed that head teachers were getting rid of teachers because they weren't producing the data necessary for the school to survive um, in the marketplace. Change is instrumental, just do this. There's no opportunity for discussion. The context very much, civic welfareism is under great threat, and the networks tend to be entrepreneurialism and populism. A lot of the people who might have been in school improvement, school effectiveness, are now um, consultants making an awful lot of money. Uh, and so in that sense, um, we are seeing the fact that knowledge is for sale um, and there is no alternative. And in fact, the profession are um, encouraged to do that. Now, in doing this, there are two trends around these trends. About, gosh, it's going to be about um, 10 years ago now, Pat Thompson and I wrote an article about makeovers. And we argued that Trini and Susanna, there on the left, were presenting ways for professionals to learn to accept changes and to learn to accept who they are and what they're about by taking on a particular image and brand. Now, do we all remember what not to wear? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the article, we argued that head teachers were being made over. And when you look at their program, then you'll see that what they did was they always identified, usually women, they did sometimes with men, they tried to make over Jeremy Clarkson, he wasn't having any of it. Um, but um, they would uh, have a group of women, they would be behind a mirror, and they'd identify a woman to be made over. You had to have somebody for whom the difference could be visible. You can't have a difference that's internal. It has to be public. So they identified the woman, 
They stripped her off into her underwear and put her in a, a mirror room, 360 degrees. You've heard that before, um, yeah, 360 degrees. They would then talk about what was wrong. They put her in some of her clothes that they'd been to her wardrobe and stolen and brought to the studio and tell her how wrong she was. They then gave her the rules. They uh, So things like, you can see today that I'm following the rules. V-neck, doors have a V-neck, and she always wear lipstick. So they would then give them the rules, and they'd give her £2,000 to go out and spend that and keep her under surveillance with a camera. And if she didn't follow the rules, they would come and grab her in the shop and say, you're doing this wrong. And then they would do a big reveal to the family. Yeah? That's Ofsted. Everything that I just <laughs> is Ofsted. Now, what, what we showed in that article quite seriously, was that people were being seduced into image and power that was impossible. We, certainly me, could never end, no matter how many times I try the rules, I can't enter the world of Trini and Susanna because it's classed. You can tell by my pronunciation of class, I would never get in there. And we discussed the notion of class and the way in which class operates in England. And therefore, they were showing to women who were poor and not much money a world they can never enter. And similarly, the profession of being shown a world of corporate uh, executive officer that they're presenting as seductive and wonderful, but actually they can never really enter. And some of a few can. You only have to read their accounts of how wonderful it is to be making a quarter of a million pounds a year running the school. Now I think it's shifting. And this is Aunt Lydia. Yeah? Aunt Lydia from The Handmaid's Tale. Now I've got two episodes I'm behind. Um, so that's naughty. But you can see the difference in presentation. That's the most incredible character on TV and lights up the trend that's going on. Because she's not interested in you feeling good about coming with somebody different. The levels of coercion and violence <coughs> to the handmaids who are only wombs to produce children that the elite cannot themselves produce is incredible. And, and what this illuminates is that we are sleepwalking into totalitarianism. And in many ways, what a teacher training at the National College for School Leadership was about was initially this. And if it had carried on, it would have been this. And I think uh, there are issues here about the way in which uh, the country is full of Aunt Lydia's. Perhaps there is another pro uh, approach possible. In other words, you can see I spend my time watching <laughs> when I did the um, when we when we did the makeover program, um, the makeover we watched everything. I'm not sure it was wonderful whether or not my brain exploded, but it was really interesting to watch that you make over your family, your garden, your house, your job, your relationship. You, it's all the same pattern. Now, if you look at who do you think you are, there's a pedagogy involved there. 
were by the celebrity who's, who's having their uh, life story and history investigated. What's particularly interesting about that is that they become active teachers as well as learners. They're not just people who have it done to them, but actually are people who drive the process as well. Now I know there's a bit of a conceit involved, and I know that there's uh, some manipulation involved, but there may well be spaces and opportunities to think and do things differently if we think about pedagogy and we think about learning and teaching and the role of the teacher. The teacher has to be somebody other than Aunt Lydia. So, we've got to think about education in the public realm. So this is my final point. What I've been doing a lot of, and I know that Goethe's an expert of, and I'm interested to hear from you um, during the day, is how we think with the rents ideas. Not got time to go through it now, but we need to think about the public realm, and that the public realm is not TV, and it's not Twitter, it's actually about how we enter and present ourselves, and thinking about our knowledge, our ways of knowing, our who the knowers are, and our knowledge abilities. I often say to my students, try the next few weeks without using the word leader and leadership, and see how you go. And actually it's quite liberating to recognise that you need to be talking about teaching and learning in children. How we might take action rather than labour and work. Increasingly, teaching is labour. In other words, it's about um, ticking the boxes. Uh, and labour's important in our world. If we didn't have labour, we wouldn't get fed. There wouldn't be electricity here without some people labouring very hard right at this minute. But actually, we've also got to be taking action. <coughs> Recognition of plurality, that the human being is plural, and therefore we have plurality. Our job is not just to co-opt people into one way of thinking. And natality, where she argues that we should do something new every day. And I'll leave you with that message. Mm -hmm.